it's been a joy to be able to preach these last few weeks. And each week we have looked at uh, mainly a text of Scripture, but as I mentioned the first week, we've used different movies to illustrate the truth of what we've seen in Scripture. And so the first week uh, that I had the opportunity to preach, we looked at Matthew 18 and childlike faith, and we talked about the movie Elf and how Buddy the Elf is very much like a child and has that childlike, those childlike qualities that we looked at. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 2, the passage of Jesus' birth, and we talked about the Grinch and how the Grinch sought to take Christmas away, but in taking all the extras of the festivities away, he actually discovered what the true meaning of Christmas was. And so we looked at Luke 2 and saw the true meaning of Christmas is about Christ's coming. And so we talked about the Grinch last week. Today we're going to talk about another character who hated Christmas by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. And if you're not familiar with the movie or the, the book uh, that the movie is based on, it's the movie or the book A Christmas Carol, originally a book written by Charles Dickens, which has been adapted into all kinds of different variations of movies. In fact, uh, last night I was just flipping through the channels and saw a version of the, a, a Christmas Carol I'd never seen before. I turned it on for just a moment, and it was almost like a darker version of it with the ghosts and all those things that visited him. And so there's all kinds of variations uh, even, a, even a Jim Carrey version that's a little more cartoony. So despite which version of the movie that you've seen or you're familiar with, the story is the same throughout. Scrooge is this grumpy old man. He hates Christmas. He's not very kind to people until one day he's visited on Christmas Eve by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And so he has a new perspective of uh, his past dealings that have made him the type of man that he is, that he's kind of cruel to people. Uh, he sees the present reality of what people think about him, and then he even sees into Christmas future, and he sees how his cruelness has affected others, namely his employee whose son dies because uh, he's not paid well, uh, and he even sees his own death and how no one weeps or mourns for his death. And so after being visited by these ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, his perspective is changed, and he has a response to what he's seen. And he responds by having a heart for people, understanding others' needs, being kind, being generous, and actually enjoying Christmas time. And so we see this perspective change as he sees past, present, and future realities of Christmas. And this morning, I want us to do the same thing that happened to him. I want us to look at Christmas past, present, and future. And we're going to see these based on not ghosts visiting us, but instead we're going to look to Matthew 2 and see the wise men visiting Jesus probably a couple years after his birth, and the gifts that they offer actually point us to Christmas past, present, and future. And so as we look to, Luke, or to Matthew chapter 2, rather, I want us to see how these gifts point us to the past, present, and future realities from their perspective of who Jesus is. Uh, was, is, and what he came to do. And so let's read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12 together. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from, went from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Before we dive into the text this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that your word would open our eyes to the realities of who Jesus is. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just have a, an intellectual understanding of, of who Jesus is, but rather that we would respond in worship. And bowing down as these wise men did. And worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Lord, open our eyes to your word. Challenge our hearts. And may you be glorified in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here a very familiar passage. Typically lumped in with the Christmas story. And uh, when in reality, a lot of times this is portrayed as happening the night of Jesus' birth. Uh, if you've seen the movie the nativity, they line all that up, and a lot of other, I think the movie The Star, we were watching that with the kids, a lot of, of, of narratives will line this up with Jesus' birth, as though the wise men showed up right as Jesus is being born, when in reality these events probably take place up to two years after Jesus' birth. We don't know for sure, but we see there, verse 1, that this was after he was born in Bethlehem, and as the wise men come, we see that Jesus is not in a stable or a cave, instead now he's in a house. Even the word for child that's used uh, when it says they saw the child with his mother is a different word than the Greek word for infant. So it means a toddler, a little bit of an older uh, child. And then based on the fact that Herod, uh, in, in verses 13 and on, the rest of the chapter, when he uh, doesn't get word back from the wise men, he seeks to kill all the children in the area that are two years and under, seems to suggest that this was at least a year or two years after Jesus' birth. And so we see here Herod... Uh, is really just kind of minding his own business when all of a sudden these three are actually, we don't believe it's three, we don't know if it's three, we see, typically see it portrayed as three because of the three gifts, but it may have been a number of these magi, the Bible would say, arrive and ask, where is this king of the Jews that's been born? These magi, these wise men, as our uh, English Standard Version translates it. We don't know a whole lot about them, but we know from Scripture they came from the east, uh, possibly Babylon, Persia, something of that nature. They traveled a long distance. They were likely astrologers who studied the stars, and when they saw a star that was different from what they were used to seeing, uh, for whatever reason it compelled them to go to Judea and find this king born to the Jews, this king of the Jews. And so they come... To the area, they come to Judea, the region in which Jesus was born, and not knowing where to go, they go to the most likely place for a king to be born, and that is Jerusalem. 
As they arrive in Jerusalem, they're expecting everyone to know what has happened, that their king has been born. And so they ask around, hey, where's your king? Where's the king of the Jews? And they're befuddled. They don't know what they're talking about. And so the whole whole area is troubled by the news of these wise men, and it gets back to Herod. And as they talk to Herod, of course, he's troubled as well that there's some other king that has supposedly been born. And so he gathers these chief priests, the Bible says, and scribes, and says, where is this king? Where's the prophecy of this Messiah? Uh, Where is he supposed to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes say, well, in Bethlehem, which was about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. And so Herod then tells the wise men, as we see here, to go and to find the child. And when they found him, send word back so he can come and worship this new king, this king of the Jews as well. When in reality, we know Herod had no desire to do such. Instead, he saw this as a threat to his own kingdom and wanted to, to of course, have this king killed, this baby killed. And so we see the narrative happen. We see this, these wise men arriving. Again, we notice they see a star. We're not sure exactly the details of this. A lot of people think, was this some kind of supernova? Was this a comet, a meteor? What was this that was going on? We really don't know. Uh, seems to me, though, that this is something supernatural because when we see them leaving Jerusalem in the latter part of these verses, verse uh, 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. In verse 9, actually before that, says that the star that they had seen rose went and went before them until it came to rest over the place where Jesus was. So this seems to be more than a star as it's moving, as it's resting upon a house, some kind of supernatural uh, type of light that's, that's leading them to this place. And so the wise men arrive. Again, this is probably a couple years after Jesus is born. And when they see the child, they fall down at the child's feet and worship him. And they present to him these very expensive gifts, gifts meant for a king. And these gifts, as we're very well aware of, are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we see in these gifts, the reality of Jesus' past, present, and future from their perspective. And so I want us to look at uh, the gifts and the story that these gifts paint of the gospel and of Jesus' uh, identity as well as his purpose for coming. And so we're going to look at these gifts. Will you click back on Proclaim for me? And I think this click, hopefully this clicker is working. Did you do that or did I? Okay, so I'm going to have to have you advance through there. So, uh, first of all, we see here, and I want to, of course, they're listed gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I want to start with the gift of Christmas past, which is frankincense. In Leviticus 2, 1 through 2, we see frankincense mentioned. And there's other places in the Old Testament we could take time and, and talk about each of those. But I wanted to highlight this one in Leviticus 2, verses 1 through 2. Uh, it says this, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as it's a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So we see in this passage and in others that frankincense was an incense that was used in this Old Testament sacrificial system. John MacArthur says that frankincense was costly, 
It was a beautiful smelling incense that was used only for the most special occasions. It was used in the grain offerings at the tabernacle and temple, in certain royal processions, and sometimes at weddings if it could be afforded. Origen, the great church father, suggested that frankincense was the incense of deity. In the Old Testament, it was stored in a special chamber in front of the temple and was sprinkled on certain offerings as a symbol of the people's desire to please the Lord. So here we see this gift of frankincense points us to the past sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, and it points us to the past reality of who this baby is, that Jesus is God from eternity past. The same frankincense that was used as an offering, as a sacrifice to God, is given here to Jesus, who we know is God. Now, there's a lot of debate, and there has been throughout history among the world, as to who Jesus is. A lot of people think that Jesus was just a prophet or a good person, someone to emulate. Maybe a lot of people don't even think Jesus was real, the historical Jesus. Instead, he's just kind of a symbol of uh, doing good and doing what's right. But when we examine Scripture, we find that the debate as to who Jesus is is settled because we see that throughout Scripture, Jesus is God in human flesh. We could go to John chapter 1, and John begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then we skip down to verse 10 of John 1. He says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then verse 14, John's Christmas message in one verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Later in John's gospel, we see the words of Jesus as he is talking to the religious leaders, and he says, I and the Father are one. And it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said, I and the Father are are one. Later again in John's gospel, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? We see this reality of Jesus' deity throughout the epistles as well. In Colossians 1, 15 through 19, Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
Later in Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We could spend the rest of the morning examining what Scripture says about Jesus' identity, but hopefully these verses demonstrate very clearly. There's no debate. Jesus is God. The apostles, the disciples recognized it. Jesus recognized it as he talked with the religious leaders and with his own disciples. There's no debate as to the reality of who Jesus is, that he is God. And so we see this gift of frankincense points to the past reality of the sacrificial system, but also to the past reality of who this child was, that he is God from eternity past. And so we see the gift of frankincense point to this reality of Jesus' deity. But the next gift points to the present reality of Jesus' royalty. Bryson, if you'll go to that next point. And this is the gift of Christmas present, gold. Gold is probably the most familiar uh, item, gift in this passage that we're familiar with. Uh, John MacArthur says, Throughout history, gold has been considered the most precious of metals and the universal symbol of material value and wealth. And this is true for us today. Gold is very valuable even today. As such a precious metal and a symbol of wealth, this type of gift of gold would have been a symbol of royalty. It would have been reserved for kings. And so these gifts that are presented by these wise men who are likely in their own regard kings or royalties in their own sense, here they are bowing before the king of kings and lord of lords, giving him the gift of gold, acknowledging that even this small child is a king. Jesus coming as a king in the line of David was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So we see this prophecy of a king through the line of David coming and bringing peace, bringing salvation to Israel. We're familiar with Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which also prophesies of this coming king. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see this prophecy of a king coming, of a child being born, of his kingship affecting even the government. When the angel of the Lord announced to Mary that Jesus was to be born and who he was to be, in Luke 1, 31 through 32, we see this reality that he would be a king. The angel said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In the first chapter of Matthew, you can go back and see that kingly genealogy of Jesus, going all the way back to David, tracing the fact that Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. That's why, as we talked about last week, he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so we see the reality of the fact that Jesus, here in the presence of these wise men, is the king of the Jews. This is what they sought on their journey, to find the one born king of the Jews. And it was the mention of a king that made Herod mad, that made him troubled, because he desired to be the only king over the Jews. David Platt says this about Herod. Herod had been given control of Judea by the Romans in approximately 40 B.C., and he was considered the king of the Jews. He was a vicious, bloodthirsty tyrant. Whenever he suspected anyone of plotting to take over his rule, he would have them killed. He even went so far as to murder wives and sons at various times when he didn't trust them. So when Herod hears that officials with power and influence have journeyed to Jerusalem to find a baby born king of the Jews, Matthew says that he is disturbed, which is really quite an understatement. So here, Herod hears of this king and he's troubled. He sees this king as a threat to his rule and to his reign. And as he's not stopped uh, at even murdering his wives and children in the past because they were a threat, he's not going to stop at finding this child born a king and having him taken out of the picture. And so we see that Jesus, the king of heaven, comes to earth in the form of a baby. And these three wise men from the east who have, again, may have been kings themselves are bowing before the king of kings and lord of lords, offering this gift of gold. So we see the gift of frankincense points us to that past reality that Jesus is God from eternity past. The gold points to the present reality that he's the king of kings. But wait, there's myrrh, right? The next one, Bryson, if you'll click number three, the gift of Christmas future. This myrrh points to the future reality of who Jesus would be. So we see John MacArthur says myrrh was also a perfume, not quite so expensive as frankincense, but nevertheless valuable. Some interpreters suggest that myrrh represents the gift for a mortal emphasizing Jesus' humanity. Mixed with other spices, it was used in preparation of bodies for burial, even Jesus' body. So frankincense recognizes Jesus as God. Gold recognizes Jesus as king. Myrrh recognizes that Jesus is human, that he's put on human flesh. But it also points us to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It, re- it demonstrates the reality that Jesus was a man, and as such, he would die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. In fact, after d- uh, Jesus' death, in John's gospel, we see myrrh mentioned. It says uh, in John nineteen thirty-eight to 40, and it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, they came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." 
So this gift of myrrh that the wise men are laying at the feet of this child points to the future of what Jesus would do. That being God, that God in the Old Testament sacrificial system to, who, to whose sacrifices were made, sacrifices of bulls and goats which could not fully atone for sin but would temporarily cover sin, now God is becoming a man to be the ultimate sacrifice. Not just to cover sin temporarily, but to cleanse sin and to remove it altogether for those who trust him. We see this beautifully fleshed out in the book of Hebrews, and we could look at almost the entire book of Hebrews, but I want to highlight a couple passages there that talk about the fact that Jesus is this perfect sacrifice, that the Old Testament sacrificial system points to him laying down his life. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So before we move on in this passage, think about the Old Testament sacrificial system and the high priest on the day of atonement would enter into the holy of holies. And every year he would enter that holy place to make a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. But here Jesus is entering into the actual holy place, not one on earth, but the one in heaven to pay the sacrifice once and for all. And it says this, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The next chapter over in Hebrews chapter 10, it says in, in verses 10 through 14, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, which can, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is what the beauty of this gift points to. That that Old Testament sacrificial system was not sufficient to cleanse the sins of you and me. Instead, Jesus, being God in human form, he steps down from heaven, steps into humanity. Why? Because God can't die. And so he puts on human flesh to be that sacrifice. In his humanity, he lives a perfect, sinless life according to the law and then lays down that life as a sacrifice to remove our sin once and for all. If we will trust him by faith, if we will turn from our sins and believe in him. This gift that the wise men lay at this child's feet point to the reality that this child was born to die. This little baby would grow up and become a man who would pay the penalty for the sins of those who put their faith in Christ. We don't know a whole lot about these wise men. We don't know what they may have known. It's interesting in the book of Daniel. As Daniel was in Babylonian captivity, we know Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you probably know them more familiar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they are 
in Babylonian captivity, they encounter wise men like this. In fact, Daniel's elevated to this position of authority over all the wise men. And so it could be that Daniel's influence had these wise men looking to this star, looking for this coming Messiah. But we see that as they come, what little we know about them, we can see in the gifts that they provide, that they point to the past, present, and future realities of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I want to close with us considering three responses to the past, present, and future identity of Christ. And these aren't in your notes, but I do have them on the screen. So Bryson, if you could scroll to that first, first one there. The first response I want us to consider when we understand who Jesus is is Herod's response. Herod, as we've talked about, saw himself as king, and anybody who would claim to be king would threaten his throne he was going to take out of the picture. And while we may not be as bloodthirsty as he was, and we may not have a kingship in an earthly sense and authority here on earth, the reality is that many of us see ourselves as the king of our life. And anybody who would threaten to take away that kingship, that rule of our own heart and life, we would see as a threat. Right? We love the idea of Jesus as Savior, the one that would save us from our sins, But how many of us acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king of our life? That we should be in submission to what his word says. That we should be obeying what his word commands us. If we desire Jesus as savior, but we've not made him the Lord of our life, then we don't get him as savior either. So we see Herod's response is to reject the kingship of Jesus. And I ask you today, is this your response to who Jesus is that... Well, I I believe he's God and I believe he died for our sins, but that's not going to have any bearing on the decisions I make in life. I pray that's not our response. The second response I want us to consider, if you'll hit that next one, Bryson, is the religious leader's response. Here are these well-known, they knew the scriptures thoroughly, chief priests and scribes, they knew the word of God better than anyone. So much so that when Herod calls to them, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? They know intellectually where he's going to be born. Well, Bethlehem, right? Micah 5.2 tells us Bethlehem. But it's interesting that even though Bethlehem was a short distance away, five or six miles, they don't bother to go with the wise men. They don't bother to head down there and see this king, this God, the Messiah born to him. I love the way the commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown puts this. It says, But where were ye, O Jewish ecclesiastics, ye chief priests and scribes of the people? You could tell Herod where Christ should be born and could hear of these strangers from the far east that the desire of all nations had actually come. But I do not see you trooping to Bethlehem. I find these devout strangers journeying, journeying thither all alone. Yet God ordered this too lest the news should be blabbed and reach the tyrant's ears before the babe could be placed beyond his reach. Thus are the very errors and crimes and cold indifferences of men all overruled. So here are these religious leaders. They know the truth. They know the reality. They know all the facts about the coming Messiah, but it doesn't compel them to take the journey to see the Messiah. These are the same religious leaders that butted heads with Jesus throughout his ministry. Why? Because in their self-righteousness, they couldn't understand that God would humble himself and come to pay the penalty for their sins. They were trusting instead in their own righteousness, trusting in 
the sacrificial system, which was meant to point them to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. They couldn't understand the reality that Jesus was God come in human form. Is your response any different than these religious leaders? Maybe you see yourself as a good person. You see yourself as, I go to church, I do some good deeds. But have you truly realized your need for salvation? Have you truly realized that your righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God? And that only Jesus coming and paying the penalty for your sins can restore that relationship that's been broken by sin with God? I pray this isn't our response either, but instead I want us to see the third response. And it's the wise men's response. It's interesting that throughout the Gospels we see God coming and God speaking to the least likely of people. Last week we talked about how the angelic announcement was to the shepherds, those who were outcasts of society. And here we see not the king recognizing who Jesus is, not even the religious leaders. Instead, we see these wise men from the east seeing who he truly is. They come before this king. They travel. Uh, the religious leaders weren't even willing to go five or six miles. They probably went hundreds of miles. They probably set out when Jesus was born and are just now arriving a year or two later. They were willing to go to this link to worship this king of the Jews. And we see them laying down these gifts as an act of worship, as they humble themselves and acknowledge who Jesus really is. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say it this way, this expression, so this is the expression of them giving gifts, used frequently in the Old Testament of the obligations presented to God, is in the New Testament employed seven times, and always in a religious sense of offerings to God. Beyond doubt, therefore, we are to understand the presentation of these gifts by the Magi as a religious offering. These gifts not only point us to the reality of who Jesus was and is and what he would come to do in dying, but their gifts are an act of worship. They're bowing down to the king of kings. Herod joked that, hey, send back word so I can come and worship him. And that was never his intention. But this was the intention of the wise men, to bow before him and to offer him these gifts which show him as God and king and sacrifice. We need to recognize this reality of Jesus as well, that he is God, that he's created us, that he is king, he has the right to rule over us, that we were part of a kingdom of darkness, but if we've trusted Christ, we've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, and it's through his sacrifice that he would lay down his life for us. And what should our response be? I pray our response isn't like Herod's, that we would buck against God telling us what to do, it wouldn't be the religious leader's response that we're content in our self-righteousness and our religious, religiousness. But instead, I pray our response would be like the wise men who worship God. And Romans 12, 1 would encourage us to do the same. As Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The way that we worship the king, the gift that we give him is the gift of our life. He's given his life as a gift to us and we return that life to him. Trusting him as God, as our king, our Lord, the Lord of our life, and as the one who's done everything necessary to save us. As we think about 
the movie The Christmas Carol, as Ebenezer Scrooge sees the past, present, and future, he has a response. He has a decision to make. Am I going to keep being the same person I've always been, or am I going to change in light of what I've seen? And I pray as we've taken a glimpse at Christmas past, present, and future when it comes to who Jesus is and what he came to do, that we would respond. If you've not trusted Christ as Savior, that's the response to make. To turn from your sin, to acknowledge that he is God and King and sacrifice for you to put your faith in him. And for us who do know Christ as Savior, may this be something that we rejoice in, just like these wise men, that we daily give our life as a sacrifice to be used however the Lord would lead and direct. So have you rightly responded to Jesus today, not just as Savior, but as God and King of your life? If not, may you, like the wise men, bow down before him today and offer your life back to the one who gave his life as a gift to you.